Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. J.D., J. Dilla, Dilla, Detroit-born hip-hop producer James DeWitt Yancey went by many names, but his rhythmic brilliance was always the same. Today, 16 years after his untimely death at age 32 from a rare blood disease, the most popular artists in the world cite his influence, Questlove, Kendrick Lamar, Drake. But in a new book, Dan Charnas makes the argument that Dilla did more than change hip-hop. He took music's rhythm standards of straight time and swing time and created a whole new one, Dilla time. We'll get a musicology lesson. And then Gayla Barron is retiring as a columnist at the Santa Rosa Press Democrat after 65 years at the paper. That's a legacy. And that's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In the now legendary hip-hop history of the 1990s, there were the East Coast heavyweights, Wu-Tang, Biggie, etc. Then the West Coast of Dr. Dre, Tupac, Snoop, Too Short, all our people. But in Dan Charnas' new book, Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm, it was James DeWitt Yancey, a kid from the Detroit neighborhood of Conant Gardens, who's had the most far-reaching impact on the world of music, saturating and even overspilling hip-hop to many other forms of music. We're actually listening to the instrumental of Slum Village's Ode to Conant Gardens. Charnas' book combines biography, musicology, and cultural history to tell the story of Yancey's genius. And this morning, Dan Charnas joins us to do the same. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, man, this is such a good book, and I'm so excited to have you on. Why don't we start out with James's Detroit origins? Like, what were the circumstances of his upbringing and kind of the cultural significance of Detroit and the, the specific neighborhood, neighborhood where he grew up? Sure. Well, you know, he was born right in downtown Detroit to uh, two parents who hailed from, you know, Detroit's sort of central black neighborhood or rather where black folks in Detroit were compelled to live during the 50s and 60s called Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. His mother uh, was an amateur opera singer whose career had kind of been, you know, uh, uh, curtailed. Uh, and his father was an aspiring uh, bassist and songwriter. He worked with Kim Weston, who ended up on Motown Records singing with Marvin Gaye and, and had a solo career. Uh, and he worked with um, other local musicians, but never quite uh, had a career that sustained him. So he worked at the Ford plant. So he mm -hmm. was born to sort of these musical people whose careers had not quite taken off. Mm -hmm. And how'd they make their way to Conant Gardens eventually? Well, Conant Gardens was, you know, historically one of the only neighborhoods where black folks could own property 
Um, it was named after an abolitionist, Shubal Conant, uh, who, who made it that way. And it was more of a middle, middle class, uh, historically middle class neighborhood. And so when he was young, um, James with his, uh, his brother and sister moved out to Conant Gardens. And that's where he did most of his growing up in the Detroit of the 1970s and 1980s, which was slowly becoming less of the Motown mm -hmm. and the George Clinton P-Funk thing and more of this electronically driven music scene. Yeah. Well, techno, right, was the, 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 what was called in Detroit, this kind of style of music that was starting to use all of these synthesizers and, and drum machines. Yes, absolutely. Um, but it's but but James, Jay, you know, Jay Dilla, his, his real name is James Yancey. James was uh, a fan of the New York way of making electronic mm -hmm. music, which was made on turntables using pieces of, of vinyl, um, which came to be called hip hop. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this book. I mean, you're trying to talk about the feel of rhythm in music, and it feels like it's a pretty difficult challenge to do that in print between the covers of a book. So can you tell us a little bit about the format and how you've chosen to try to represent these innovations of Jay Dilla? Yeah, well, I needed to make an argument for this guy, right? Uh, and the argument is, is, sounds weird, right, on its face, that this beat producer is on a par with the musicians who we consider to be the greats. Louis Armstrong, Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, John Coltrane. What is this beat producer doing in the same echelon with these folks? And in order to make that argument, I have to make a musical argument. I have to, and then I have to anticipate that folks don't know what this stuff is. So um, I use uh, not musical notation to let folks, let the average reader know what these accomplishments are. I use things like grids, uh, things, uh, symbols that people can actually understand. And in one case, I use the, the map of Detroit, mm -hmm. sort of teach the music theory. But what James Yancey did was absolutely astonishing and very influential, uh, you know, much past his commercial impact. I would like to have you read a little bit uh, of the book. I think we've got you queued up on uh, sure. where, where to do it. And uh, just so people can kind of hear your style. Sure. Well, this is, James is 10 years old uh, at this point, And his parents are DeWitt and Maureen Yancey. So I'll read here. DeWitt and Maureen had programmed James with the music of their lives. Jazz, soul, gospel, classical. His 10-year-old body contained at least 50 years worth of code, bass lines and drum riffs, melodies and cadences. But as he got older, James began to program himself. Detroit had a Black-owned TV station, WGPR, and on it, a uniquely Detroit music and dance show, The Scene, hosted by Nat Morris, featuring futuristic music and otherworldly dance moves that made Soul Train look tepid by comparison. On the radio, two DJs brought distinct approaches to their shows. The electrifying mojo on WJLBFM created an eclectic ecumenical mix of electronic driven funk and soul, one of the first DJs in the nation to throw his support behind a little known Midwestern artist, Prince. Meanwhile, Jeff Mills on WDRQFM 
balanced New York rap records with a growing crop of local Detroit tracks, some made by Mills friends who were creating their own distinct genre of electronic music. These sounds were different from the music of James' parents. That difference came into stark relief for James in 1984 with two rap songs out of New York, Sucker MCs by Run DMC and Big Mouth by Houdini. These were not normal instruments he was hearing. The drums on these records didn't sound like anything like the drums set he played in church. They were so loud that they seemed to fill every available sonic space, unwavering, relentless, perfect in their uniformity and repetition. The kick drum vibrated so low that it shook the floor. The vocals on Big Mouth stuttered like he did, but on purpose, like they were being cut up somehow, starting and stopping short, starting and stopping again. James didn't yet know that these sounds were made on machines. But in that moment, he decided, however this music got made, that's the way he wanted to make music too. Because one day I might not laugh, the day your mouth right to take your behind can't can. You got a big mouth, a big mouth. So one of the things that's fascinating is on the one side, you've got the sort of perfection of the machine if you want the machine to do it perfectly. It will right. hit that beat every single time. On the other side, you've got some of his parents' music played by live musicians, and you've got the errors that happen when people are are yes. making mistakes. And you, you have a line in the book where you say, the sound of error stayed with him. What do you mean by that? Well, he loved... Uh, he loved the sound of error. He loved the sound of, of chaos, of human mistakes. And there's this sort of, to do a Citizen Kane reference, there's this sort of rosebud moment for him where he's watching this old movie, a Sidney Poitier movie called A Piece of the Action, where Mavis Staples does the theme song, but the, the director of the film in post-production added the sound of hand claps, except the claps keep coming in and out of sync with the song. And it's uncanny when you watch this clip because you realize that this was so influential on James that he started incorporating this kind of error into his music. And our popular music <laughs> sounds like this last scene of this movie. A lot of it does rhythmically because people are trying to sound like James. Tell us what you mean by that, right? I mean, in the history of music, you know, we got straight time. It's just kind of the, the music played uh, each note equally. We've got swing time. Maybe you can describe that. And then yep. you propose there's Dilla time. Yep. Okay. So here it is. European music, right, in the European tradition, beats are essentially counted evenly. And that makes sense. We want, we want our clocks to be regimented. So when we count, we count one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four. And that's straight time, right? And opera and symphonies and European folk music. Uh, and a lot of our popular music is counted straight. In America, in the 20th century, there evolved a new sort of time field, right? That we call swing time. And that is not counted evenly, it's uneven, right? So it sounds like, one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four. And you can hear that in jazz, in funk, in, in, in rock. As a matter of fact, for my students at NYU, the example that I like to use is Bohemian Rhapsody. You know the song, right? Mm -hmm. So at, towards the end of the song, you know, there's this big opera section, you know, Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia. <laughs> and then at some point, Freddie, Freddie Mercury sings, For Me, 
for me, right? And and it turns for me, from, yeah, right. right. <laughs> and it turns from opera into rock and roll, and it goes from straight to swung, and it journeys from Europe to America in two seconds. So that is the difference between straight and swung. But what happened in Detroit in a basement in Kona Gardens in 1998 was Jay Dilla, James Yancey, found a way to take straight time, some elements that were straight and some elements that were swung and jam them together, put them in conflict with each other, resulting in a rhythm that people describe as drunken, uh, loping, limping, uh, uh, broken, right? All of these adjectives to describe this limping feel. What you're hearing is that conflict between straight and swung that wouldn't have mattered much if programmers and musicians around him hadn't started imitating that style. And that's what happened in the late 90s and early 2000s. We're talking with Dan Charnas about his new book, Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm. He's an associate professor at NYU Tisch's Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music. And we would like to hear from you. Do you remember the first time you heard a Jay Dilla-produced song? What was it? How'd it make you feel? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, or forum at kqed.org. This may be your first time hearing a Jay Dilla song. This is the instrumental from Busta Rhymes, Still Shining. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking to Dan Charnas about his really mind-expanding book, Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm. That was a bit of the song Runnin' by The Far Side, produced by Jay Dilla, of course. And the marker of a kind of turning point for him and his career. Can you talk about that, Dan, and what the artist Q-Tip had to do with that? Oh, man. Well, he was working in obscurity in Detroit. No, no hip hop had come out of Detroit. Right. I myself, I was working in the record business in Los Angeles and um, all of us loved the far side, this group that had come out of L.A. in 1993. Um, and when we found out that their producer was leaving, we thought, you know, maybe the group, you know, what's going to happen with the group? Maybe they're I done. Remember, 
Right. And I remember talking to Mike Ross, the owner of their record label, Delicious Vinyl, and said, what's the far side going to do? And he said, oh, don't worry. We found this kid out of Detroit named JD. And we're like, JD? Detroit? But, you know, no hip hop has come out of Detroit. What are you talking about? But we, we soon found out when, uh, you know, when this song debuted, I remember the, I remember where I was when I heard it and saw the video. Uh, it was, it was a revelation. And it, there's a crazy story in the book uh, about the creation of this song uh, that the, the group actually gets into a, members of the group actually get into a fist fight over one of the members of the group changing uh, Dilla's drums for this song. And the other one, you know, a tray from the far side is saying, you know, change it back, right? We have to protect James' rhythmic signature. Just from the very beginning, you know, people saw him uh, as really special. But how he got to produce the far side, how he got plucked out of obscurity, was by Q-Tip from A Tribe Called Quest, a uh, very popular East Coast rap group uh, from the early 90s, right? And Q-Tip rolls into Detroit uh, at, at Lollapalooza, uh, a Detroit <laughs> musician who's on tour with him says, you gotta meet this kid. And they meet on the bus, uh, Dilla hands him his demo tape and walks off the tour bus and that's it. A few days later, uh, James gets a call at the house from Q-Tip, this incredible worldwide, world-known, world-renowned star saying, hey, I want to help you. You know, not so much I want to manage you, but I want to I introduce you to everybody. That's amazing and inc incredibly generous. And so that's when uh, JD met the far side. He met uh, Buster Rhymes. He met De La Soul. Uh, eventually he met The Roots and Common. And that's how in the mid nineties, he begins to make his way out of Detroit and into uh, and into our hearts. It's actually pretty remarkable how many people in this book sort of meet James, hear his beats and just go like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to help you. There was sort of yeah. Amp Fiddler, his first teacher, another guy named R.J. Rice. And they're just kind of it's not the standard music industry story where every single person is to out to exploit him. I mean, there are clearly those people too, but there's all these people who are just struck by how virtuosic he is on these drum machines. It, it, it's, it is amazing how, how he attracted people. And James was a stutterer, you know, so he didn't speak a lot, right? He, he, he spoke with his hands, so to speak. But I think also that impulse to embrace him uh, frustrated him a bit, a little later later on because Q-Tip eventually invited JD to be a part of his production collective with D'Angelo and Raphael Sadiq and Ali Shaheed Muhammad called the UMA, which means mm -hmm. brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And Q-Tip's idea is we're all gonna produce these records together, but we're gonna have it be one credit, meaning all the records mm. are credited to the UMA. So JD's making all these great records to the UMA, but his name isn't on a lot of them. and when he, you know, just as he's trying to break free of this, because how do you tell your mentor you don't want to be a part of this, that you want to make your mm -hmm. own name? It was very frustrating for him. And just as he's trying to extricate himself from this situation, he becomes embraced by another collective we call the Soulquarians, right? Mm -hmm. And that's D'Angelo and The Roots and Common and, and Erica Badu. So if you look at the credit on Jay Dilla's biggest pop hit, like the, the biggest pop hit he ever had rose to number 23 on the pop charts, a song called The Light 
by Common. He is credited as produced by the Soulquarians JD for the Uma. Like he's smothered in brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and that is why he kept changing his name, I think. I think that's why he changed. He was first professionally known as JD. That's when he became Jay Dilla. And he does, you know, let's talk about the move that he makes here in order to sort of get his name out there, to put his stamp on this production style that he's pioneered. And that's Welcome to Detroit, his debut studio album. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, You know, the process of how it happened was uh, a a small record label owner in Britain, again, fell in love with his beats, wanted to do uh, an album of instrumental beats. Uh, with with this Detroit producer, what James gave him in return was really his first solo album with his incredible lyricism, with um, adventurous beat making, some of the most severe implementations of that limping rhythmic sense, mm-hmm. uh, but also playing traditional instruments. James was a drummer. He was a bassist. He he knew how to do everything. He was a singer, too. So I love that album, Welcome to Detroit. I think it's super important for really understanding who Jay Dilla was in the prime of his career. And we actually have a track that you suggested from that, uh, Come Mm. Get It, uh, instrumental here. Let's listen in. Tell me, what do you hear in this? Describe for our listeners, what do you hear in this? Beat? Well, you can hear it limping, right? Do you hear that? Do you hear the sort of uh, the, the disagreement of the rhythmic elements? You're hearing a hi-hat that is completely swung. But the, the, the kick drum and the snare are kind of straight. And yet the snare comes in too early. So that's another kind of rhythmic sabotage. They're like three different rhythmic elements working against each other. And then with all these hard drums, you have this very, very sublime, ethereal uh, sample he's using, vibraphone, strings. It is classic, classic J.D. Jay Dilla. I love this song. So I want to talk about the piece of equipment that sort of enables these kind of fine-tuned Dilla time beats. That's the MPC 3000, a kind of new instrument designed by a guy named Roger Lynn that uh-huh. Dilla really becomes, he's the virtuoso of this instrument. Yes. yes. And what's really interesting is that the initial drum machines that Lynn made, um, even before the MPC, the ones that Prince uses, right, uh, on his classic albums, he was the first person to put swing in a drum machine. In other words, he was the, he found a way to have folks make their beats uneven you know, certain degrees of unevenness, which helped machines sound a little bit more like, you know, uh, a human groove. Um, but what Roger Lynn did on the MPC what, went even further. He allowed drummers not only to put in their own drum sounds, so you could grab little pieces of kicks and snares and things like that from records and, you know, uh, break beats and things like that, but you could also take each individual element and put it on sort of a different clock, right? 
You could have one element that was straight, one element that was swung. You could have one element that was straight, but like you, 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 you mess with the time a little bit. So things come in too early or too late. You can shift things around. And uh, the other drum, the, the rival drum machine during the 1990s did not allow this level of freedom. And it wouldn't be a few year, for a few years until computers actually allowed users to sample and move things around uh, with the graphical user, user interface. Mm -hmm. And that is when you start to hear James J. Dilla's rhythmic subterfuge begin to make its way out into the world. Yeah. I mean, when we're talking about a genius, <laughs> which I think yeah. we're, we are talking about that here. There's always this question of how did this person see these possibilities in the world, in music, that other people did not. There were other people who had MPC 3000. Yep. There were other people who were from Detroit. There were other people yep. who, you know, were super deep in this music. What, for you, what's the, what's the answer to that? Well, of course, that, that is, you know, one of those quests, right? If, if you're, you're on as a biographer to find out what makes your subject tick. And I think one of the answers was that movie, right, that I mentioned earlier, a piece of the action, you know, that, that, really wild, wildly rhythmically free erratic kind of 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 music making and composition but if you ask james and a few people did he would just say it's the way i bob my head it's the way i move my body his brother says it's a physics of movement it's how we move mm -hmm. it's as simple as that he just he felt rhythm and he felt life a certain way and that may very well be why you know, why when he became ill later on and it became uncomfortable to be in his body, why his beats changed. Mm. Let's talk about the trajectory of his life. I mean, he dies so young. Mm -hmm. And when did he become aware that that was going to happen? Um, and and what, what effect did it have on, on the, the music and, you know, his final release? Yeah, well, in 2001... He makes that album, Welcome to Detroit, that, that you and I just discussed. And then he gets this life-changing offer, record deal from MCA Records, you know, Universal, right? And he's going to be able to have his own record label and he's going to put out his own album. And he's in the midst of that arc, right, of trying to become his own solo artist. When he gets diagnosed with this uh, very rare blood disease, called TTP. And just very briefly, it's just a disease that makes the blood kind of sticky and gums mm -hmm. up the organs. And, and it's funny, it's very similar to some of the side effects of COVID that we see now. Mm -hmm. Some of the same medicines are used to, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, to help it. And so he had to go on, I get regular blood transfusions. He had to go on dialysis. This is around 2003. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that he knew he was going to pass, at least not consciously. But uh, those last three years of his life were marked by him using every available moment. Like he, he lives for the drum machine, right? And yet he needs to be tied to these machines, these other machines in order mm -hmm. to live. And there's that tension between wanting one machine and not wanting to be tied to the other ones. And as you know, his, his illness progressed, uh, he really, um, he really tried to use every available moment he had 
to to make beats, uh, whether he was at home or in the hospital. So we get to this final album, Donuts. We're going to listen to just a full minute of the song Working On It. Uh, this is from Jay Dilla's 2006 album. The sonic explosion yeah. that is going on in this song is so yeah. incredible. And the distance that these beats have traveled from, like, you know, Houdini Big Mouth, the first song uh, right. that we heard on the show. What What do you say about this music? I mean, it really reflects. This is this is from Donuts, sort of his last album. It was released three days before he passed, right? And it it, it reflects a lot of different things. It reflects uh, a change in the way we make music. So James started to make music not on an NPC, but on a computer, on a laptop, which allowed him to manipulate uh, sound, to stretch it out, uh, to squeeze it in in ways that he he hadn't before. And again, it shows that the tools are only as good as the master who uses them. Mm-hmm. And this particular album has been so influential after his passing. Um, it, it really uh, provoked what people call the beat, the beat scene or the beats music scene in Los Angeles and led to uh, the birth of artists like uh, Flying Lotus and Knowledge um, and inspired what... Uh, what the kids now call the lo-fi mm-hmm. hip-hop music, even though I would not describe donuts in any way as lo-fi. <laughs> you know, there's a an event, right, called Donuts Are Forever. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of how people celebrate Jay Dilla's legacy, you know, to, to today? Well, this is the thing. He, he was very obscure when, during his lifetime. He didn't really have uh, big articles written about him, didn't have big pop hits, uh, and was actually in retreat from sort of the commercial side of the business uh, towards the latter part of his career. And yet he worked with all these famous artists like D'Angelo, Erica Badu, and so forth. Um, But when he died, it was like this outpouring of affection and sentimentality and, and love that was sort of inexplicable to a lot of folks uh, at the time. And it, one example is what you mentioned, um, Donuts Are Forever. It starts with Jay Dilla dies on February 10th, 2006. And uh, a bunch of, of DJ friends who you know, just followed and loved and adored his work just got together for an evening to just play uh, his music and the music that inspired him. And they decided they had so much fun that evening and it was so uh, restorative to them. He said, let's do this every year. 
And that began the Donuts Are Forever uh, annual party in February that uh, lasts until this year. They're in their, I don't know, 16th year or something like that this year, 15th, 16th year. And um, But that's not the only party. They have them in London. They have them in Paris. They have them in Los Angeles. They have them in the Bay Area. And there are people still who are like, I don't get it. What's the big deal about Jay Dillo? Why? Why? What? What is this all about? Oh, it's just because he died, right? It's that kind of adulation that an artist gets only after they've passed. And I suppose that was one of the motivations for me writing the book is that I wanted to explain to folks, no, it's it's actually deeper than that. He really had a profound impact, even though it wasn't commercial in his lifetime. He had a profound impact you know, in terms of musicology, right? Yeah. Music theory uh, that artists, jazz, pop, R&B, soul, uh, rock use now to this yeah. day. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. A listener on Instagram writes, I probably came across Dilla's music when I was in middle school listening to Commons like Water for Chocolate album on repeat. I don't remember the first time I listened to Time, the Donut of the Heart, but it's by far my favorite Dilla song. And every time it comes on, I feel like I'm listening to a lullaby. We've been talking with Dan Charnas about his new book, Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm. Dan's an associate professor at NYU Tisch's Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music. Thanks so much for this book and for joining us, Dan. Thank you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Obligato, the Jay Dilla remix of Brother Jack McDuff. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.